Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Okay, great to be with you uh, this evening. I uh, showed a picture of the uh, environment outside earlier. I think most of you probably saw it. So it's April the 15th. There's just over a foot of snow left on our front yard. And uh, the snow banks at the side of the road are down to about three feet high. And just so you don't think too poorly of us, we had a beautiful sunny day today and the temperature was 31 degrees Fahrenheit. So wonderful day here. Uh, we even went outside for a bit. Now in our sessions together, I will be with you uh, Sunday morning and two weeks from tonight. I want to look at a, a topic and we might uh, phrase it this way, God is good. Or if it was an apologetic, we might say, is God good? You know, the critics would look at tragedies, uh, catastrophes in the world and say, how could a good God allow those things to happen? We look at our current circumstances and people may ask that question. Well, how can a good God allow this uh, to happen if he is if he's good? And we, we know, based on many scripture, that God is good. Uh, his revelation to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 was that he was abundant in goodness. Uh, the goodness of God leads to repentance. Uh, all things work together for good to those that love the Lord, uh, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. And then uh, in Peter says to us, Oh, taste and see, or since you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So how do we reconcile uh, catastrophes, disasters with this thought that the Lord is good? And so I want to look at three passages over our three sessions together. In this first passage we're going to look at, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You might want to turn there. Uh, here the issue is, what we've just gone through, why did we go through it? And what was God's plan or purpose out of that? Uh, the next session will deal with the fact that perhaps uh, our perspective is wrong. We just don't know what good is. Maybe we were looking at the wrong thing. And then the third session, uh, it'll be uh, from the future looking back and we'll acknowledge that God has been good. Now, why do bad things happen to good people? That's been an age-old conundrum problem. Why that should be that uh, bad things should happen to good people. It's there in Scripture. The book of Habakkuk really wrestles with that problem. Uh, Jeremiah, the beginning of his book, wrestles with it. In fact, there's an interesting or funny little line in Jeremiah chapter 12 where Jeremiah says, you could solve this problem, Lord, just take the wicked, line them up like sheep and take them to the slaughter. And that'll fix the, the problem. But various psalmists, Psalm 37, Psalm 49, Psalm 73, all written by different authors, uh, wrestled with the same uh, issue. Uh, how can a good God allow these things to happen? Now, seldom does God explain why he did certain things, why things happened. For instance, you think of the book of Job. Uh, Job never receives an explanation uh, for what he went through. Uh, we understand because uh, we can read the book of Job and see the first two chapters and read the end of the book and see what God intended. Uh, 
But Job never really got an explanation. Uh, that's part of his complaint through the book. He, he wishes that there was some way, uh, chapter 9, that there was an umpire, somebody to put his hand on God's shoulder, as it were, and on his shoulder, bring them together and explain what was going on. When God does respond at the end of the book, he just asks Job 77 questions and never gives him an answer. They're rhetorical questions. Uh, where were you when this happened? Or can you do this? And uh, what it does is reveal something of God's character, but doesn't give us reasons why. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God actually tells us why he did what he did to the children of Israel in the wilderness. He gives us uh, insight into what was going on, his plan and purpose. Now, as we uh, look at this chapter, of course, it's to do with Israel, it's to do with their time in the wilderness, it's to do with them nationally. But I think we can draw some lessons from it uh, for us today. And so I trust as we uh, think of this uh, passage and just draw some thoughts from it, that we can find application for our life today. So we'll read the first five verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Every commandment which I command you today, must, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on, the, on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. So when we think of the wilderness journeys of the children of Israel, God could have provided a different way. Uh, there's a more common route from Egypt up to uh, Israel, the way of the sea. Uh, would have been a far easier journey. But we read in, in Exodus that God purposely led them into the wilderness so they wouldn't face war, wouldn't be discouraged right off. But they went in the wilderness, and of course the Egyptians chased them from behind. The Red Sea was in front of them. They were boxed in. Uh, but God had a plan. He allowed them to go through the Red Sea. But I think most of us know what happened as they went through the wilderness. They, there was times when they were thirsty. They came to Merah, and there was bitter uh, water. Uh, they, they had nothing to drink. They thirsted. Uh, they complained about the lack of food, and so God sent them manna in the wilderness. He could have led them uh, through a fertile valley where there was food available for them. But God purposely led them. Uh, one of their stops after Merah was Elam, a place of palm trees, uh, an oasis on the way. Uh, God could have created any number of oasis along the, along the path. It could have been an, uh, an easy trip, a lovely tour of the wilderness. It was a difficult time in many ways, and of course it stretched from the original two years to 40 years. But God uh, was at work. 
And here in this chapter, he explains his purpose, what he intended uh, for them and what he wanted to accomplish. And there's three things that uh, God uh, was trying to do or wanted to do in the lives of these people. And I think we'll see that we can learn and glean an application from these. So the first one is he wanted to humble them. The second is he wanted to test them. And the third is he wanted to teach them. Now you might think, well, why didn't he just have them go to a seminary, go to a Bible school, just have instruction? But God uses the word, the scriptures, he uses uh, teaching, but he also uses the circumstances of life uh, to get our attention and to, uh, to work in us. And so when we think of the fact that all things work together for good, to those that love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose, we can look at these uh, things in the life of the nation of Israel and say, well, what was God trying to accomplish? And so we think of the first thing here. He wanted to, to humble them. Now, that wouldn't be high on the list of many people, that God would want to humble them. So the last thing we might say that our flesh wants uh, it's the last thing the world wants. Uh, if you were to go to a, a secular uh, counselor or psychologist, they would tell you about the importance of loving yourself, of putting yourself first, of, of being positive in everything. And it would be all centered on, on you, centered about I. Uh, so here God wants to humble them. Or we could think of, uh, the devil, we think of Satan, uh, he was, the original sin, we might say, was pride. Uh, Isaiah 14, the five I wills that the devil uttered as he uh, stated his desire to usurp God's, God's place. And so, uh, in God's view, uh, humility is, is so important. Now, of course, we need confidence. Uh, we need to be assertive. Uh, we need to do our jobs, and some of that is being in leadership uh, roles uh, with our children. We want to uh, teach them to be self-sufficient, to uh, again grow, to, uh, to be responsible, but we also need to teach them uh, the importance of service and, and sharing and submitting, uh, things that exhibit uh, humility in a life. Now, why is humility then so important? Why would God list this as one of the things he wanted to teach them uh, through this? Well, pride is condemned in scripture. Uh, there are six things, Proverbs says, that the Lord hates us. Seven are an abomination to him, and the first of the seven is a look of pride, a proud person. Both James and Peter tell us that God resists uh, the proud, but he gives grace uh, to the humble. Uh, pride is just inherent in us. It's part of our makeup. We come into the world as it were, kicking and screaming. And as we get older, we become more refined, but we still want to be the center of attention and get our own way. And so uh, pride is a, a tremendous problem and a hindrance to uh, the Christian life. And it's so important that we humble ourselves in God's sight. Uh, 
Uh, so for instance, again, in Romans chapter 12, you have these one another statements. Uh, what we're to do to one another and for one another, and we're to associate with those that are humble. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, we're to give preference to others. Uh, so time and time again, we are to be humble. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as the verse before says, uh, we are to be humble, to be meek and lowly. And so time and time again, there's this emphasis on humility. And so when God dealt with these people in the wilderness, part of his reason was to, to humble them, to make them recognize their dependence on God, to have them take a subservient or submissive position uh, before the leadership he had instituted. And so it is perhaps uh, in our life that God allows people into our life and uh, perhaps circumstances that are sometimes adverse uh, to humble us, have us to just examine where we're at. Now, humility is a difficult thing to attain. It's been said that uh, when we think we are humble, uh, we've lost it. Uh, but humility is, is, was the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, meek and lowly, uh, the mind of Christ, uh, to empty himself of the prerogatives of Godhead, come in the form of a servant. And so we see humility in the person of the Lord Jesus, and the Father desires humility in us. And so he says for these people, it was part of the, the lesson of the wilderness. Again, none of us would book a, a tour somewhere and say, well, I'm hoping that the outcome of this is I become more humble or I learn humility or I become a better servant as a result of this. Uh, most of us take a trip with the view to enjoying ourselves, to seeing new things, meeting new people. But here God's uh, we might say as their travel agent brought them on a journey that uh, brought them to uh, humility. And so uh, that's high in God's uh, list of, of attributes, of virtues, that we humble ourselves. It's only as we humble ourselves that he will extend grace, but he resists the proud. When I'm proud, I think I can do it. I don't need him. But when I come before him in humility and prayer and submission, I'm acknowledging that I do need him and only him to help me. So that's the first thing that God had in mind, the first lesson that God had for them. Going through the wilderness, they would have no idea, I'm sure, what God was trying to accomplish. But in difficult circumstances, this was what God was doing. But then the second thing he says is he wanted to, to test them, to know what was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandments or not. Now, of course, the Lord knows everything about us. Uh, the Lord knows, uh, the 139th Psalm says, he knows even when there's a word in our mouth, before it comes out, he knows it altogether. Uh, he knows everything about us. Uh, Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 4, everything is naked and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so God knows us. There's coming a day when he will evaluate what we've done uh, by testing the motives of our heart. He, he knows not only what we've accomplished, but why we've done 
what we've done. And you would think then, well, why does God have to test them? He obviously knows the heart, but God used circumstances to test them. And you see this in, in Scripture. Again, going back to the book of Job, uh, the key verse I would suggest in the book of Job is Job 23, verse 10. Is when Job came to the realization that he said, uh, when he has tried me, I'll come forth as gold, tried in the fire. And so he recognized ultimately that God was doing a work there. And it was the trial that revealed or produced uh, that quality or that character uh, in him. And you think of uh, Mark chapter 4, the disciples, the Sea of Galilee. If they had been asked before they got in the boat, uh, do you trust the Savior? Do you have faith in him? Do you believe in him? Are you confident in him? They would have answered in the affirmative to all those and been very sure of their faith and belief uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as they entered uh, the storm and they strained it, at the rowing and they were afraid for their lives and they called out to him to save them do you not care that we perish and he calmed the storm but at the end of that that scene he says oh you of little faith uh, what the storm revealed was the level or the extent of their faith the lord jesus says a similar thing in matthew chapter 6 in the sermon on the mount when he talks about uh, worry and he says when we're concerned by worry when that controls our thinking, and he says, uh, we exhibit little, little faith. And so that can be true in our life. And so the Lord does test us, does try us. The trials of life produce something. In Romans chapter 5, uh, we rejoice in tribulation. We might say, well, we don't. But you know the outcome. You do rejoice, not because of the trial you're going through, but because of what God is doing. And one of the things he's doing is producing a proven character, approved character. And so he uses the circumstances of life to, to test us, to try us, to, to build character within us. And then when you think of uh, what he says to James, similar idea that we counted all joy when we fall into various trials. Why? Because the trial of our faith worketh patience, and then that leads to maturity, Christ-likeness. Again, character is developed as a result of uh, facing the trials and allowing God to do his work in us. Uh, Peter tells us the trial of our faith is much more precious than gold that perishes though it be tried by fire, that might be found on the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is great value in the trial of our faith, the testing of our faith. And what God wanted to see was in those circumstances, would they be obedient or not? What was the extent, the level of their obedience? And so he allowed them to experience these things in the wilderness uh, by way of a a test uh, of their faith and of their obedience to prove the reality of their walk with the Lord. So he used these circumstances to humble them, to teach them humility, but also to test them, just to see what was inside of them. The third thing he wanted to do was to teach them. 
And again, we might say, well, why didn't he just sit them all down? Moses taught them many times. He expounded the law to them. Uh, God uh, gave them the book of Leviticus and all the instruction about approach to him, the tabernacle, sacrifices. Why couldn't God just sit them down and give them a, give them a lesson? Why did he have to use these circumstances to teach them? And it seems that there was two things he wanted to teach them here. He wanted to teach them the value of the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. Of course, these are the words the Lord Jesus quoted when he was being tempted by Satan, and Satan asked him to turn the stone into bread. And the Lord's response was, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so here in the wilderness, the Lord wanted to teach them the value of his word. Do we appreciate the value of his word? And often it's in the adverse circumstances of life that believers go to the word of God, that they find comfort and solace uh, within uh, the word of God, perhaps in a way or at a time that's, that's not always true of us uh, in normal circumstances. We might read, we might study, but as we see perhaps on Facebook or on posts by various people, uh, people have found enjoyment and comfort in the Word of God in times like this. And the Lord wants us to spend time in His Word. There's so much that the Word of God does for us. And of course, is instrumental in conversion. We're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. But the word of God also cleanses us. The washing of water by the word, Paul says in Ephesians, and that's perhaps the illustration we have in the feet washing in John chapter 13. It also uh, comforts us. We find comfort in the word. We read the Psalms and we find out that other people have gone through difficult times and we find out how they cried to the Lord and depended on the Lord. And so God's word provides comfort uh, for us. It also provides correction. When we've gone astray. We walk in the light as he is in the light. And the light, of course, comes from God's word, that light and lamp that the psalmist talks about in the 119th Psalm, that gives guidance and direction. But it also causes conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 3.18 talks about the fact that if we look in God's word and we see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God takes those things that we've seen and changes us from one degree of glory to another. And so the Lord wants to impress on us the importance of his word. It's interesting in Luke 24 when the Lord Jesus talked to those disciples who uh, were distraught, uh, their hopes had been dashed, uh, they were emotionally uh, devastated. What does he do? He opens up the word of God to them. And so God wanted to teach these people that great truth as well, the importance of the word of God. But he also wanted them to recognize the importance of the discipline or chastening of God. Now, usually when we think of uh, discipline or chastening, we think of something that's 
uh, physical, something where we intervene. So with children, we, we actually deal with them face to face and we, we tell them where they're wrong and maybe give a punishment uh, for what they've done. But the idea of the chastening hand of God and the discipline of God is more through the circumstances of life. God gets our attention. God guides and directs us. He uses uh, things in life. Sometimes it's people, perhaps even difficult people. Most people don't realize that as they go into marriage, especially in a Christian marriage, it's really not uh, what you're going to get out of it. It's what what the Lord's going to do in you as, as you learn to relate to another person who has different ideas and goals and ambitions. The Lord uses a life uh, to mold us and make us. Our problem is we're not always willing to learn the lessons that the Lord has in mind. We often uh, rebel. Uh, God's Word talks about patience, endurance. The idea is that sometimes it takes a while for God to do the work he wants to do. It's not overnight. It's not uh, it's not automatic. It takes time. And so he wanted these people to recognize that his discipline, his chastening, was an act of love. We're reminded of this in the book of Romans, that the one he loves, he chastens, he disciplines. So there's no uh, indication of God's hand in a person's life when they are going astray. You would wonder if they are truly born again. But uh, if they belong to the Lord, the Lord's going to intervene in their life. So here we are where God actually explains what he was doing. He led them through the wilderness. He allowed them to suffer these things, to thirst, to hunger, all those things. And he says, these are the reasons. I wanted to humble you. I wanted to test you. And I wanted to, to teach you. Now they experienced the Lord's guidance, his preservation, says their garments did not wear out, their feet didn't swell, they got manna, they got water from a rock. God protected and provided, but they did have their, their rough times. Here in April of 2020, we are in the midst of difficult times. We've experienced uh, disasters before uh, in our, our nation, in our economy, but this time we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the outcome will be. We might wonder, well, why does God allow this? We don't always know, but God here explains some of the things that he was doing. Now, he also says he does this because there are dangers, dangers that lie ahead for these people. They were going to leave the wilderness and go into the promised land. And you would think, well, their, their journey's over. They've got it made now. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. The Lord says, no, there's, there's dangers. And we'll point out three dangers that they would face that perhaps we would face as well. So we want to read from verse, verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land 
which he has given you. <clears throat> Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his judgments. To, uh, sorry, beware that, verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and the statutes which I have commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful home, houses and dwell in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, when all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you, to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gave me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And so here uh, we see that there are dangers ahead. Now, we're thinking of the children of Israel. They're under a covenant that's different than the covenant that we are under. Their covenant had to do with the land. Obedience brought blessing, uh, allowed them to stay in the land. Disobedience brought a curse and ultimately eviction from the land. And so as we read this chapter, we understand that he's talking about them nationally. But for us individually, what we've looked at is so true. But here are the, the three dangers that uh, are evident um, that God wants to guard against. One is in verse 11, where he talks about what they're going to get. And so one of the dangers is prosperity. And that can happen, can it? We take our eyes off the Lord. Why did Demas forsake Paul? He loved this present world. Uh, John tells us that's possible for the believer. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Uh, the love of money, the root of all evil. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to warn those who are rich in this world, in this age, not to trust in uncertain riches. And so prosperity can take our eyes off the Lord. Uh, the pursuit of things can be harmful in the Christian uh, life. And so God was preparing them uh, for that possibility. The second danger is in verse 14, or verse, uh, yes, verse 14, when your heart is lifted up and you forget. So pride, they might think that, well, we have done it. We did this. It's because of our, our um, goodness or whatever. Your heart is lifted up and you forget that it was the Lord who led you all this way. And so the Lord is uh, preparing them by allowing them to learn these lessons in the wilderness so that when they are prosperous, they don't forget. Uh, they don't get lifted up with pride and forget. And then uh, the third danger is at the end of verse 17, or in verse 17, then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gave me this wealth. To be presumptuous, to, to think that you could do it by yourself. And so those were dangers that they they faced. 
Are they dangers that we might face? Certainly are. We mentioned prosperity can be a terrible thing. Pride, God resists the proud, uh, can put us in a place where we're not useful for the Lord, unusable. And then just to be presumptuous, to think that we can do it on our own, that we don't need, need him. John 15 reminds us, without me, you can do nothing. And so these are dangerous for them and for us. But the phrase I was that drew me to this chapter is at the end of verse 16. God says, all this was to do you good in the end. Now, they had no idea uh, when they were going through these things that it was for their good, that God was concerned for them, and it was only uh, with a view to their good that God was concerned. But God knew. He allowed them to go through those things. And so as we go through difficult times in life, uh, times like this, perhaps, and who knows the outcome, how do we know what God is doing uh, in us and through us? When we have come across difficult people, we have health issues, uh, various problems we might face in life. How do we know what God is doing? Well, by faith, we believe this statement that God's doing us good. In the end, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord or to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so in this chapter, uh, the scroll is opened. Heaven is opened, we might say. And God says, here's, here's why I did it. And here's the dangers you could face. And here's what I'm protecting you, you from. Uh, if you look on to verse 19, he says, then it shall be if you by any uh, means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. So that was sadly the outcome for Israel. They didn't learn these lessons in the long term. They did for the generation uh, of Joshua and the generation that outlived Joshua, but then they soon forgot these lessons. And so where we are in life and what the Lord is doing to us individually, we may not know, but we can be confident that he is doing this for our good, as he says, to do you good in the end. Is humility good for us? Yes. The trial of our faith good for us? Yes. Are the lessons of life and dependence on his word and his love and care, uh, are they good for us? Yes. They will protect and preserve us uh, in the coming days. And so, um, just some thoughts for you to meditate on and think about on Sunday morning we look at a, a psalm uh, psalm 73 where the psalmist uh, knows for sure god is good but his perspective is all wrong he doesn't really understand what good is and so we'll look at that lord willing sunday morning let's close in a word of prayer father we do thank you for your word and we thank you for this revelation in this chapter of what you were doing uh, as we thought, you could have made the way very easy for them. No problems, no difficulties, but you purposely led them through a wilderness where they had difficult times. But you had a purpose in mind. Uh, teach them humility to test their faith and to teach them to depend on your word and to learn something of your character, to 
arm them, prepare them for the dangers that might come ahead. And so, Father, help us to see that you work in a similar way in our life. We're not under that covenant, and the blessings aren't physical and visible, but you do work in our lives to do these very same things. And the dangers are very real that we face as well. We can uh, we can get sidetracked by prosperity. We can be lifted up with pride, or we can become presumptuous and think we can do it on our own. So, Father, impress these lessons uh, on our hearts and help us to meditate on them and think about them uh, tonight and the coming days. We pray as we commit ourselves to you in the Savior's name. Amen.